Captain, incoming message. Say, Donovan, I understand we have a new offer that we're going to give to our many listeners just to get an idea of how many are out there and to give them a nice little perk for following us along on this great journey. Well, we are trying to find out how many people are actually listening to our podcast, so I thought I would throw a little incentive out there. The first five people who email us at startcomicbookreviewed at gmail.com. Uh, just email me your name and address, and I will ship you three random Star Trek comic books. Star Trek. Very nice. Of course. It's a Star Trek podcast. Makes sense. This is 2011 now. If you're listening to it in 2012, 13, 14, there's still a good chance that you might be the one of the first five <laughs> people to email us. So Maybe. So just uh, the email's free, and I will ship them on out at my own expense, but we would just like to know who's out there listening. Don't even have to give us any feedback, but feedback's always welcome. Oh, love the feedback. And by the way, uh, participants of the podcast can't participate in this offer? That's true, and it's one offer per address. Ah. So, you know, a husband and wife duo can't expect to get two sets of these great comics. And just as a disclaimer, these are just random Star Trek comic books that I have duplicates of. None of them are incredibly rare, so don't expect to get gold key number one or anything. But, you know, it's a free comic. We're going to be reviewing them at some point, so you might as well uh, give it a read. So there's the offer. Please email us when you can. And thanks for taking part and listening to the podcast. And uh, we'd love to give you some comics. Thanks, everybody. And we now return you to our regularly scheduled program. Engage. Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc., Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken, episode number 24 for December 9th, 2010. So we're going to call this the Motion Picture Era Episode 1. Oh. Because we're moving into a new timeline in the Star Trek universe this this episode. Yes. So even though we did kind of touch to this uh, this timeline back in, uh, we reviewed Marvel Comics 1 through 5 which was based in this timeline. It was an adaptation of the movie, and then the haunting of the Enterprise and the haunting uh, on Thallus. So this will be the first uh, of a series of episodes we will be going through the whole post-Star Trek motion picture to Star Trek to Wrath of Khan era of Star Trek. Cool, yes. So definitely some of these uh, Marvel untold voyages are right in that untold period of time after that big motion picture. Well, ironically enough, that, that, that series is called Untold Voyages. Yet, right. we have the Marvel series that ran 18 issues that was based in this, this era, telling some stories. We have... Uh, but not the, these particular stories. Not those particular stories, but some other ones that we'll also be reviewing. Plus, there was uh, about 20 stories uh, that were in the daily 
comics in the newspaper, which we'll also be reviewing. We'll review the first arc of that, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll be reviewing um, episode uh, or issue number one of the Untold Voyages, which came out like in 1998. So it'll be kind of cool that we'll get how the Star Trek universe this era was being seen in 1980. And we'll also be seeing how in 1998, how we look back on it with uh, the Untold Voyages. Cool. It's kind of cool. It is. But first... Something not as cool. No, we have to have a message from our sponsor. For you parents who don't speak Klingonese, he's saying people of Earth unite and bring your kids to McDonald's for a Star Trek meal. That's a regular hamburger, fries, soft drink, a McDonald's and cookie sampler, and a Star Trek prize. Oh, he has five different boxes based on Star Trek, the motion picture, action scenes, jokes, games. He says, take it from a father who knows. His kids love him. McDonald's Star Trek meal available for your kids now. So now we're back. <laughs> that's great. That, Wasn't that you know, great? That's, it, it's, it just brings a tear to me, I, so hearing those commercials uh, again. A little preview of what our first story will be, which is... The McDonald's Happy Meal comics. Which <laughs> really stretches things. But, yes, it is Star Trek. It's a comic. I so guess it counts. We have to review it. Yes. And this also has a little bit of a soft spot in my heart because, for all intents and purposes, this is my first foray not into only Star Trek comic books, but Star Trek itself. Because I was, what, four or five when this came out, this movie, and I remember getting a Star Trek Happy Meal and reading the comic. Cool. And that was my first uh, my first introduction to Star Trek. So again, it was like Star Wars, so you, so you decide you'd give it a whirl. Exactly. You know, when you're five years old, uh, that's all you really do, right? You just try to associate all new stuff with what you already know. Mm-hmm. And I knew Star Star Wars, so I was like, eh, spaceships, aliens, comics, Happy Meal. It's all, it's all good. It's all good. All right, so there was actually, uh, as the prize uh, in your Happy Meal, uh, you got like a little plastic communicator, and in that plastic communicator was a comic strip that was eight panels long. And you kind of you thread the comic through the, your little communicator, your wrist communicator, and you could see one panel at a time. And then you would pull it down a little bit and read the next panel, pull it down a little bit and read the next panel. So we'll actually just kind of give a few word synopsis of what's going on in each panel, and then uh, we'll talk briefly about it. So there was a total of five, and um, I'll go ahead and go with the first one. It was entitled uh, Star Trek Stars. So each, each comic strip had their own little title. So basically this is just uh, basically it's like the opening credits where you're going to see who, who's who in the Star Trek uh, motion of the picture. So the first panel showed the USS Enterprise, and it labeled itself as Command Ship of the Federation. And then the second picture was a picture of the bridge. Uh, the third picture was Captain Kirk. And these have little captions, so it said Captain Kirk. The fourth picture was says Mr. Spock and had a picture of Spock. Uh, number five was Chief Engineer Scotty. Number six was a picture of Bones. Uh, num- uh, number seven was a picture of Chekhov, Ilya, and it said Executive Officer Decker. And the last panel was a picture of the Enterprise kind of above like a planet, like 
a Saturn-like planet, and it has the caption of "Mission to stop an alien force speeding towards Earth." Mm. And that was it. Movie tie-in. Yeah. So my only comment on this was Ahura and Sulu got nothing. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Ilya's there. So yeah, well, she and Deckers are in there. So short, short-changing, traditional standbys for the new kids on the block. Right. Well, they they were major characters in in the movie. So they are, and apparently Ilya is such an important character. Uh, she ends up in some of the comic strips. Oh man! Uh, the... way, way to spoil it. <laughs> Which really doesn't make much sense. But but we're not there yet. Right. So. Yeah. So we're, I'm, I'm seeing the strip on, strip on this thing. So the, uh, the 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 printout we've got of these uh, actually shows this thing almost like a uh, viewmaster, like a like a vertical viewmaster, instead of the uh, pictures being on a little wheel. Uh, it's it's a strip. Yep. And uh, it's a very simply drawn strip at that. Well, I mean these these things were tiny. They were about yeah. each panel was about the size of a. Uh, a watch face. So, uh, it's, it, and so this communicator, wrist communicator thing, did it have like a little plastic lens or something, something to magnify a little bit, or no? Nope, nope. It was just okay. a little plastic window. Yeah. It was like a little plastic uh, armband that you would put on, and then it had like a little slot at the top and a little slot at the bottom where the face, like a watch face, would be. And in that little slot, you would just slide the uh, piece of paper through. Right. And it was literally just a piece of paper, so it would get all like hung up in there and start bending and uh they didn't last very long. The mm-hmm. the, the the little armband lasted much longer than my comic strip did. Yeah, and the fact that uh young Donovan was uh using it didn't help at all. <laughs> the master of disaster. I bet. Well, yeah, I'm guessing. Well, I'm 5 years old or 4 years old. I can't uh, let's see. 80 I would be 5 years old. So you can't expect me to take care of everything when I'm only five years old. <laughs> indeed, indeed. I can go and stick it in a mylar bag and put it in a comic book box like I yeah. would today if I got yeah, it. Yeah, like today. <laughs> so, so the drawing style reminded me of Yellow Submarine, Beatles Yellow Submarine artistry. Uh, I guess so. Yeah, especially some of the later ones. So, I agree. Yeah, and some of the colorings too. Uh, interesting that they chose that particular style to do everything in. I, th- this this is a Happy Meal, so obviously it was not a high-budget production. Right. And, I mean, if we didn't have the internet and somebody else other than me actually kept a hold of their five comics and scanned them in for, for the whole world, uh, we would not be reading these right now. So. And what a loss it would be. I know, right? All right, let's go into one of my favorite of the five. <laughs> Number two. And the title is, A Pill Swallows the Enterprise. Yes, a pill. Okay, so the first one. Uh, Spock is apparently saying to uh, Kirk, Wake up, Kirk. We're trapped. And Kirk says, What? And they show a picture of the Enterprise flying, hurtling through space in a big Tylenol capsule. A clear capsule is actually completely enveloping the uh, Enterprise. It's amazing. So, Spock doesn't know what it is in the next uh, picture of, of Kirk and, and Spock next to each other. 
they go ahead and try to fire phasers at their uh, capsule captor with no effect. Then, the scanners report a Delphus meteor is heading for them. They can't get out. Prepare for impact is the next scene. So this shows the meteorite inches away from the capsule-enclosed Enterprise. Then the meteor hurtling huge Delphus meteor just bounces off of the apparently impregnable capsule. Then the next one shows that the uh, capsule begins to dematerialize, and the Enterprise is free to leave its capsule-like prison, or in this case, protection. So then it shows a shot of Spock, last panel, speculating that they are being watched by a very good friend. Thus ends another chapter in the saga of the USS Enterprise, as it says at the very bottom of the strip. So, so who, who do you think the good friend is? I don't know. Uh, a pharmaceutical manufacturer? Um, <laughs> I don't know exactly. Hmm. You? Or no. Trelane? Or Trelane, perhaps? Or brother Cybok? Cybok? How would Cybok do that? Well, I guess it really wasn't Cybok, but in Star Trek V, remember God, oh, quote-unquote yeah. God, looked like Cybok, so I was being funny. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. In saying that, that God was, was really Cybok's brother, or Spock's brother. Oh, well. Yeah, not... So not so uh yeah so there you go my comment was ah. this is the silliest of the bunch <laughs> and then I read but the but other. it isn't the worst of the bunch it's just <laughs> why would they pick and they actually call it a pill swallows the enterprise i mean right. it's a pill it's it's a capsule it's a tiny time pill yeah i don't know you, you think that they could have just like poured some water on it and it would dissolve the gelatin capsule i maybe i don't know so did they did, did they do this because kids knew about, you know, capsule pills, and it just happened to be a shape that could go around the Enterprise, and they thought, hey, kids would relate to this kind of. I don't know, dude. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't notice until you were just reading it, but all these pictures of the Enterprise are the original series. It it doesn't look like the uh, the the movie version. Yep, that's right. So I didn't but know the, that. But, I didn't notice that at first. But the uniforms are definitely um, the movie. Yeah, they are. The gray ones. Right. And uh, later we'll see the shuttlecraft, and again, it's the Galileo 7. The you know the old-style Galileo 7. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. That we'll get to eventually. Yep. Hopefully pretty soon. So any more on this one? Not a thing. All right. So the next one is comic strip number three called Time and Time... And time again. And on a personal note, I am quite positive that this is the one that I got in my happy mail. Which, uh, as we'll see after we read it, it's not necessarily the best one. So, panel number one starts off with uh, Uhura being beamed away from the Enterprise when Spock at the controls says, Malfunction! Malfunction! Uh, then the next panel shows the teleportation console exploding. They could not control her destination. That was Ahura in 172 billion BC. So she's gone back and attacked by a 
Godzilla-like dinosaur, and she's on her communicator asking for if the Enterprise can read her. Next panel shows that she's in the year 22,000, <laughs> and she's encased in like a glass coffin, and uh, she basically says, again, I am three solar systems ahead of you, which I guess they told her that she's lost. I don't know. Hmm. I don't know who she's talking to or what she's talking about. Next panel shows Spock looking at a wire saying that uh, the transporter was sabotaged. The next panel shows it's 1949, I believe, or 45, Yankee Stadium. Uh, Uhura is standing uh, kind of on the third baseline uh, holding a <laughs> baseball bat saying, uh, I'll bet the Klingons are behind this. And then the next panel shows her on the Enterprise teleportation pad with the baseball bat. And Kirk says, welcome home, Lieutenant. And then the last panel shows Spock saying that it was only a matter of time before they would get her, I guess. So as a kid, I was disappointed that I got the quote-unquote girl one. Because it was a an Ahura uh, centered comic strip, and if I'm not mistaken, it was the Happy Meal box that had uh, Ilya on the uh, on the box. Oh man, you got a double hit of, of femininity. I know, right? Man. So I just if remember. If you're a little older, you would have been fine with that. But yeah, true. And if I'm not mistaken, I think that the band might have been Pink. Oh, uh, I, can't, I can't remember that well. Oh, they pegged you, man. Look out. <laughs> I don't know if they were all pink or I might be totally misremembering that. But anyways, what do you um, think of the story? A little confusing? Was, well, it, 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 these are obviously all aimed at kids, so you got to cut it some slack. But this made no I mean, it, it just it doesn't make any sense. No but, sense. It's just filler. It's just yeah, filler. Yeah, the part it's that really didn't to make throw sense. The kids. Yeah, the part that didn't really make sense was who is she talking to in that middle panel where she says, I'm three solar systems ahead of you. Yeah, and what do you mean solar systems? I mean, are are, are they are they flying through space to catch up with her when she's traveling through time? I mean... She's in the year 23,000. Yeah. <laughs> Not 2,300. So, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. So she's 23,000 years in the future. Pretty far, man. And anyway. she's in space in that yeah. picture because you see like this a sun beneath her uh, clear coffin. Yeah, she looks like it looks like the coffin that uh, Snow White was in. Hmm. hmm. There you go. But she or has that, a that... short skirt, doesn't she? Yes, she does. Yes, she does in this. And very high collar. Yeah, I don't. She didn't have that outfit in the movie. Uh, you know, she might have had a white dress of some kind, but um, I don't remember a collar like that. Yeah, I don't either. I did just watch the movie, by the way, so I am up to speed. Oh, so okay, that's good. So at least one of us is up to speed. All I have are my very dim, decades-old memory of the movie. It's been a long time. Number four? Number four. All right, it's my turn. Yay! Okay, so Votex Freedom is the name of this gem. So, the Enterprise is flying through space, arrives at Strange World. Next picture shows this big old guy with um, 
in a, in some kind of chain uh, over his arm. Big yeah, heavy chain. I, I think he's wearing a Hora's skirt from the the previous. Well, uh, it, it it does look like the same outfit except for the collar. So so even though this is only ink and stuff, they re they are reusing the same outfit as Hora's. Oh, he he looks fairly fetching in it. He's a okay. big Mr. Clean guy. I mean, yeah. <laughs> he does not bald. look as good as she did. That was a joke. Um, assume they've been down because they're all talking to the chained Votek. So Votek is the name of the big, huge guy. And he tells them that he is the last of his kind. Next one shows how he tells how he fought uh, an attacking force while his people escaped. Uh, next panel, he was overtaken by the enemies by sheer numbers and then chained, but he knew that his people were free, so it was okay. The next one shows um, Votek telling Kirk that he will never reveal the whereabouts of his people to his captors. Next one, Kirk and Spock discuss how they have power to free Votek from his chains. Uh, a happy Votek tells him that he will return to his people. And so there you go. Happy ending. Uh, Kirk and Spock come in and uh, somehow unchain this guy. So right. bravo, Votek. Now, is he really huge? or They never show him in the same panel of Kirk and Spock. So right. I can't tell if he's really supposed to be like 14 feet tall or not. I don't know either, but in that second-to-last panel, um, before you see Votek with his unchained, uh, it does show Kirk and Spock with this huge chain above his above their heads. Right. So you don't, I mean, you don't know whether that's actually supposed to be realistically proportioned, in which case Votek's a really big guy, or yeah. whether um, that's just some artsy fartsy thing they're doing. Right. I mean, but they do always have low camera angles on him, so you are always feeling like you're looking up at him. Right. Which is dangerous when the dude you're looking up at is wearing a sh- miniskirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and preferably underwear. Uh, I don't know. It might be like a kilt. You don't wear underwear under those. A kilt. A kilt. And if you you're don't. a 14-foot man, <laughs> you do not want to be standing next to Do you a... know for sure what Scotsman wears underneath their kilt? Do you know that for sure? I don't know for I don't. sure because I've never worn one, but... When I was in Scotland, that's what they told me. But it might, <laughs> it might just be a farce that uh, they, they tell all the Yanks that come over there to I, see if they yeah. believe it. I think they yank your chain, man. Yep, maybe. Only other thing I have on the Votech story is this invading alien force. They just chained him up and then they left because Spock and them don't encounter them while they're freeing him. No. And he says how he will never tell where his people are. So it makes it sound like they're either there or they may come back. Right. And he says he can join them on the last panel. So he either has a spaceship there that the aliens left for him or they're still somewhere on the planet. That's true, but all of this is overthinking (laughs) this comic strip. Because this is very... This is just very... All right. You have anything else? We'll just go straight into comic strip number five. Please let's. All right. And this one I think is the most confusing of them all, but maybe you disagree. All right. It is called Starlight Starfright. And yes, I said fright, not light. Starlight Starfright. 
So, first panel shows Bones um, and I guess Kirk, his back's just see the back of his head so you don't know for sure. And they're looking at subplanet 897J0U or J. I can't tell. Alright, so just then uh, McCoy gets like enwrapped in this uh, glowing aura and he disappears. He shows up on a uh, alien ship where this guy in a uh, evil mustache says, we need a doctor for our experiments. Uh, back on the Enterprise, Spock says that it's the Argatrons and that they're afraid of something, of not having light. So obviously the Argatrons are afraid of the dark. So uh, Spock somehow moves a moon into the uh, path of the sun, causing a total eclipse, which then, I assume, because it's all off-panel, uh, makes the alien ship or the alien planet dark and they somehow get bones back because it shows just the uh, shuttlecraft flying back to the Enterprise and you see a word balloon saying, hang on bones, I'll get you back. Oh, no, 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 they're flying, they're flying to to get them. Yeah, you're right. Because it shows them on the alien craft and you see Kirk saying, hurry now, hurry. And then the last panel just shows the uh, craft going back to the Enterprise and you see McCoy, or you, you get to see the word balloon for McCoy saying, I owe you one, Captain. I owe you one. Thus ends the final chapter in the saga of the USS Enterprise Happy Meal comic strips. Oh, bravo! Bravo! The last one. <laughs> <sighs> no, so like I said, uh, and I even screwed it up in my little synopsis, but this one was the most confusing because it seemed like Everything was happening off-panel, and you were just supposed to know what happened. So I had the hardest time yeah. on this one. Well, in a lot of cases, um, things happen in, the, in the, these little storylines that they don't really bother to explain. And if you're a little kid looking at this stuff, you probably don't care. Well, I did not care when I was a little kid. No. no. So any anything you want to talk about this one? Total Eclipse of the Sun? Um, No. No, they, very good point. I mean, I, you know, how how do they cause a total eclipse? You know, how do you manage getting a large enough object in front of the sun, or whatever the star is in the system? Makes no sense. But you can tell that the that these guys that grab bones are bad because the uh, the only picture we see of these these people, uh, the guy looks like a very well tanned Ming the Merciless. Yeah, he has the big uh, handlebar mustache like you see in the old uh, Dudley Do-Right cartoons. Dudley Do-Right? Yeah, you know, or the villain was always twirling the mustache. Yeah, that's a handlebar mustache. Yep. Yeah, the only thing I have is uh, I'm just curious as to what experiments that uh, they wanted Bones to do. (laughs) Was it that he, you know, were they like experiments to try to cure their race like we've seen many episodes of Star Trek? That that's the you know the storyline like Crusher or somebody gets gets kidnapped because they need a cure or was it some sort of dastardly plan? I don't know, but it looks like again he is inside of a capsule, a capsule, or a beaker or something, a McCoy. Oh, in that picture with Ming the Merciless. Oh, I thought that was just the showing the the transporter effect. Oh, is that what that's supposed to be? Yeah, because <laughs> if you remember in Star Trek, the motion picture, it's the only time that 
every time somebody beamed, it, they would be beamed in like a column of light, and then inside the column of light, they would start sparkling and materialize. I'm not so sure I like that start that that transporter effect, but my opinion. I liked it in the movie. Uh, I thought yeah. it was a kind of a cool effect, but you know, in the movie, you only saw people beam from transporter pad to transporter pad. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that effect would have worked if you were beaming down to a planet or something, because you would have to have this beam of light coming from space all the way to the surface, and then you would start materializing. It'd look kind of cheesy, I think. But that's yep. just me. Agreed. Interesting point. So in addition to these little comic strips that you got as your prize um, your for your communicator uh, comic strip watcher, mm-hmm. uh, you also got a couple panels of uh, comics on the box itself. And they basically told the first few minutes of the motion picture. So uh, we're not really going to go over it. But I, I kind of dug the art, though. I thought the art was actually kind of cool, the boxes. The comic. Yeah. yeah, the boxes. But, yeah, uh, some of the art wasn't bad. Like when it, that last one where it shows them going off to go save uh, the space station, that mm-hmm. Epsilon 9 that they already knew blew up. Right. You get to see the Enterprise blasting out of... Uh, space dock and it actually says flames spurt from the ship's jets as the Enterprise floats free of the dock. Ah. You get maybe the last shot we'll ever get of the Enterprise with flame just shooting out of the nacelles as it just well, can we Can we all hope for that? <laughs> can we please? I know that it, it has, it, it has it, no it, bearing in the movie but it looks no. cool. It does look cool and that's probably why they did it in... Um... In the the, uh, the, gold key the, stuff. the gold key comics, yeah, and took it even to the next level, showing flames coming out of the shuttle shuttle bay doors. Yeah, yes, that that's some good stuff there. But now the good thing about this, as opposed to the little toy comics, is it really does show the Enterprise as she looks from the movie, and uh, not not bad artistry. No, I think it looks great. So the last panel, it looks uh, there's a different shot where you don't see flames, uh, and the Enterprise looks quite nice. Yeah, no, it looks really good. Now let's just go really briefly. the The first comic, uh, the first box had the Klingons being destroyed by a V'ger, which may be a little violent for a Happy Meal toy. I thought, I mean, because it actually just shows them exploding versus like in the movie where it shows them just being digitized. And then the second strip from the second box shows the people on Epsilon 9 watching the Klingons get destroyed. The mm-hmm. third box shows the Enterprise getting ready for to be t- to to take off and the transporter accident that kills two of the true crew members. And it kind of shows them being deformed and stuff by the uh the teleportation, which again, I was like, "Ooh, that's kind of rough for a <laughs> for a little kid to be reading on the back of his Happy oh, Meal toy. Don't, oh, don't be. And then the fourth one shows Epsilon 9 be, uh, being destroyed. And then the last one shows the Enterprise and her crew blasting out of space dock, which is pretty cool. Anyways, I just thought that was funny that they picked probably the most violent scenes in the whole movie <laughs> to depict on these Happy Meal toys because nobody else dies throughout the rest of the movie. I guess Ilya does, doesn't she? She does. Kinda. But she comes back as a robot. <laughs> yes. And she even comes back in the uh, in one of the comic books we're going to look at. So uh, we'll get to Star Trek comic strip number one after these messages. 
Presenting McDonald's Star Trek Meal. Parents, take a good look. It's the only meal approved for your kids by the United Federation of Planets. Outside, the Enterprise, action, intrigue. Five exciting boxes based on Star Trek, the motion picture. Inside, a regular hamburger, fries, soft drinks, a McDonaldland cookie sampler, and a Star Trek prize. Star Trek Meal, games, jokes, puzzles. Your kids will love them. McDonald's Star Trek Meal. Oh, another fine commercial. Yep. Another little blast from the past. I don't remember these commercials as a kid, but uh, I like them now. I, I, I want to go get me a Happy Meal. Woo! Except they probably don't have toys in them anymore. Uh, well, certainly not Star Trek toys. And that's the only kinds that matter. So, uh, next thing we're going to go on to... Oh, yes, comic strips. Go right ahead. Comic strip. Number one. So, like I said, these came out in the newspaper. So, uh, these comic strips came out from December 2nd, 1979 to January 12th, 1980. Uh, and just for the record, I have tried to collect comic strips in the daily newspaper. Back in 89, there was a Batman comic strip that I tried to collect. And it is darn near impossible to uh, to try to collect that little strip out of every com- uh, every newspaper to try to get a cohesive story. So, but thanks to the internet, it's all there for you. Excellent. Thank you, internet. Yep. So uh, this this story is entitled "Called Home," and the writer and the artist is Thomas Warkington, and he did a lot of these uh, these comic strips, and uh, he's both the artist and the writer. So he has it's all him. So here's the synopsis. So um, Enterprise receives a mysterious radio transmission from an unexplored sun system. Uh, the transmission seems to be in an ancient Tolton language, uh, which we learn later is a race that was wiped out nearly 900 years ago. Uh, they go ahead and arrive at a planet where the transmission's coming from, and they find out that the transmission is actually coming from a small moon. Uh, they scan the moon and they find an old pre-warp starcraft uh, crashed on the surface. In typical original series fashion, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy beam down onto the moon to investigate. Uh, since they're on the moon, they get to use the cool environmental suits that we saw in Star Trek The Motion Picture. So it's, it's actually kind of cool. While they're uh, looking at the craft, they find that it's been deserted for 900 years. But they find some footprints and some tank tread uh, prints. Uh, they're, while they're following these prints, they, are, uh, they're, they come across a large tank-like robot. He just comes over the ridge and uh, zaps them with some beams that paralyzes them. And he can, he's telling them through telepathic means, fear not, you are loved. The robot then carries the three crew members uh, into a hidden cave, uh, and they prove that the moon is actually hollowed out. Uh, the robot takes them deep into the bowels of the moon and places them into some hypersleep chambers uh, next to two sleeping uh, beings. And these are some, some little guys. They're maybe about three and a half, four feet tall. Uh, so uh, they're in some chamber. Uh, there's some sleeping pods right next to them. The crew start to uh, be lulled to sleep by some hypersonic sound. Spock is able to keep from sleeping long enough to open up his communicator and contact the ship. Uh, Scotty beams the five life forms onto the Enterprise. 
So once in the transporter room, the everybody wakes up, including the two diminutive little aliens. Uh, these are the Toltons that have been extinct for 900 years. And they are unaware that they, uh, they're now the only two survivors of their planet due to, uh, due to war. Uh, the little aliens tell them that they traveled to the moon in hopes of using the moon as a weapons platform uh, during the war. Uh, because they did not believe the, uh, the religion of their planet that the gods... Um, were on the moon. So their religion is that the gods were on the moon. They didn't believe it, so they were going to use the moon as a uh, a, a staging post for their war. Uh, they even ask Kirk if he's a god. And before he can answer, the ship is uh, captured by some tractor beams coming from the moon, and they're being pulled into a giant open mall on the surface. So the it's they're basically being eaten by the moon now. Spock speculates that the computer that controls the moon is actually some form of an advanced civilization that actually seeded the Toltons on the planet and left the moon as a type of uh, watcher over the planet. Uh, Spock also assumes that the reason why the Enterprise is being pulled in is that the uh, computer wants the Toltons back. Um, there's a little bit of back and forth um, on how to get free, but eventually the Toltons agree to beam back over and once they do, the, sh the moon stops its attack on the Enterprise and is allowed to leave. And that's the end of story arc number one. Cool. You were just riveted, right? I was riveted. So this was uh, this was a fairly good, fairly good story for a comic strip. Yep, I liked it. I really liked it. I was really hesitant on on how the storytelling was going to be in a comic strip format, and I think they did a pretty good job. Uh, yeah, on this first one. Another comment, uh, it, and I, I, I got to jump on it because it's like on the, uh, what was he, one, two, three, fourth panel. What do we see there on the bridge sitting right next to uh, Sulu? That is a Delton uh, navigator. Yes. That just happens to be named uh, Ilya. Ah. <laughs> now, if this took place after the movie... That would be kind of difficult. Yeah. Well, you got to think maybe this was being made before the movie was finished or before yeah. this guy got a hold of uh, a finalized script or something. I don't know. Or, um, or he... the hot ball chick <laughs> was a, a, a bit of a little mini phenomenon, something they, they associated the movie with. And uh, the hell with what happened in the movie. Let's get her in the comic strip. Well, you were uh, you were around back then, and you have a better memory. W was she pretty popular when it first came out? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, there, there was a little bit of a hubbub about the uh, about the ball chick, because that was before Shanita O'Connor and the lot and uh, other things. I mean, the only ball people you tended to see was Yule Brenner. I mean, yeah, just didn't see that many ball people around. It's unique, and you don't see it very often. No, you don't. And they, they pull the same thing in Farscape in the first season or two. The blue. The blue Ma, Mia? Maya? I don't know. But anyway, she's bald. Yep. And, uh, and she was a pretty attractive lady also. Very, yep. For an alien. Yeah. For an alien? Well, she, yeah. she... Oh, it's, all, it's all body paint. That's fine. Oh, That's fine. that wasn't her real skin? <laughs> was, she, <laughs> was she a Delton, too? I'll have to look that no. up. She's not a Delton. The Deltons weren't blue. I know in Star Trek they weren't blue, but maybe in Farscape the Deltons were. <laughs> <laughs>
No. They uh, they ripped off the idea. They didn't go that far, though. Well, I went to uh, – I've been to a couple of Star Wars uh, conventions, mm-hmm. and uh, there's quite a few characters in the prequel era that not necessarily were in the movies, but were in a lot of the expanded universe stuff like the video games and the mm-hmm. comic books and stuff. Right. And I was shocked on how many women went to the Star Wars convention – and completely shave their head bald to be some of these women, like Aji <laughs> like Ventress, who's like a Sith, a Sith witch kind of character, and mm-hmm. uh, there's this bounty hunter called Ara Singh, who, and both of them are completely bald. And hmm. I was shocked on how many women actually shaved their head bald and came to that convention. You mean there are people that would actually shave their heads just for a Halloween costume? Yeah, weird, right? That's really weird, Donovan. I can't think of anybody that would do that. <laughs> I guess I have done it, haven't I? So I'm just... Yes, you have. Yeah, but... Now, mind you, it was the uh, donut cut. Since yeah. you were dressed up as... Random Star Trek uh, fan. <laughs> who, who, who likes to be, like, which character? I guess he was a cross between um, Picard and Robert Picardo. Oh, um, oh, 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 yeah! But you had the beard on, didn't you? Yeah, I did have the beard, and I had so it was, that had, was a little Riker, and I had a little Spock ears, so I was yeah. I was covering all my bases. There you go. <laughs> and uh, have you posted that picture on the site? No, I want to. I keep meaning because you do should that. do that. Yeah, because in case anybody does listen to this, and. Uh, and they're wanting to know, hey. Wants, wants to get a little kick out of seeing a uh, a true Star Trek fan. Yeah. And all his, all his Halloween glory. That that would be it. Yep. Yep, yep. But I, I've cool. shaved my head before for Halloween. I, I went as Lex Luthor one time. Oh, God, you're kidding me. That was when I lived That's in... That's commitment. I lived in Japan. That is commitment. When I did that. And, you know, they don't celebrate Halloween there, so I just did it. I just showed up Halloween day, bald, in a suit. <laughs> 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 they must have been looking at you like you had five heads. Oh, I found out that uh, that you're not supposed to shave your head in Japan because that's kind of a sign of the the that you had lice. The Japanese mafia. <laughs> oh, really? They're like, uh, you're not supposed to shave your head. So it's like and a that. Too. That and tattoos, you're not supposed to. Uh, you're not supposed to do. No. Oh, hmm. But yeah, I'm pretty sure they took one look at me and were like, mm, I don't think he's part of the mafia. <laughs> I think he's all right. Yeah. There you go. Anyways, we're way off, way off topic. Yeah, but, let's get back to it. But yeah, I agree. Uh, she should not be there. Um, but at first, I thought maybe she was just another Delton navigator. Then I think they actually call her Ilya at one point. So. Oh, did they? Yeah. Well, but anyways. Yep. Sometimes you just gotta go with things. Extinct race nine hundred years ago. Yet they still knew what the language was. I, yeah, I like, thought it was weird. Like all of Star Trek. But, well, almost all of Star Trek. But 900 years seemed a little excessive. That It's been a, an extinct race for 900 years, yet they had translations of their languages. And it was an unknown, unexplored sun system. So they're on a planet that they've never been to. <clears throat> they're speaking a language that hasn't been spoken in 900 years, and yet they were still able to figure it out. I guess yeah. it was probably the universe. Because otherwise, 
Yeah, and you, he's, even though Universal Translator has no no idea about the language, uh, it's amazing. It's universal. So, um, yep. yeah. Uh, I answered it my, perfectly. I answered my own question. I have no problem with it anymore. <laughs> yeah. It's just another one of those things you got to go with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there was an excellent book I have recently listened to, because, yes, I, I listen to a lot of audiobooks, uh, The Moat in God's Eye. And it's really cool because one of the things it does, it does many things very well, but definitely one thing it does is the aliens, the human beings come into contact for for the first time ever, they can't understand each other. Forget about it. They're, I mean, they're aliens to each other. I mean, they can't, they can't talk to each other. They can't even figure out what, you know, very much about them at all. Mm-hmm. And that's probably more like the way things will be. Oh, uh, yeah. Assuming we ever get off this little mud ball. Yeah, that's that's how it'll be. You know, you're listening to and reading, you know, real stuff or maybe, you know, non-Star Trek stuff. But I did just finish a Star Trek novel that's based in the uh, the new 2009 continuity. And oh. and one of the major characters of the novel was Ahura while she was in um, Starfleet Academy. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it went into a pretty good explanation about how a universal translator would work and how – you know, she being a, a linguist was able to, you know, put this thing together that would because all all speech patterns had similarities, even though they're speaking completely different languages and different tongues, and there's certain inflections that all languages shared. And right. I thought I was like, well, that kind of makes sense, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> well, but the thing is. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, maybe all languages from Earth. Um, well, but... but I mean, we saw in Next Generation we're all seeded from the same base, right? Those, whatever those, those forerunner people were, whatever they were. Anyways. We're all the same if you go back far enough. Which I thought was funny because this story kind of ties in with that episode where that there's these ancient civilization that seeded this planet. Uh, with life, and then mm-hmm. set up some sort of way of watching them, and then they blow themselves up. But it was able to keep a male and a female of the species in hibernation. I, I'm assuming to someday repopulate the planet. Did you get that at all? You're reading a lot into it. Well, they did say it was you know, part of their religion that it was their. They had a religion that it was their gods that lived up there. Sure. And it, yeah, but the okay, computer but you, you, only wanted the male and the female. It didn't want any. It didn't want Kirk. And then once well, I know, they but, got but off, you're saying that that advanced race. Um, okay, so I'm not so saying the, it's the, the, same. the moon was artificial. Yeah, that that's for sure. But was the planet? No, the planet. Did you say was the planet real. was no. Okay, it was real. So, so you don't really know that this alien race created those people and planted them on there. Did they say that? Did, was there some evidence of that? Or do we only know that it appears to be an advanced alien race that at least built the moon and appears to be trying to repo- you know, save some of the people and repopulate them at some point in the future? So the second half of it I'll go with. but Yeah, so you're thinking I'm maybe uh, reading too much into it? Maybe. So, so they say the moon was built by an ancient culture for a specific purpose. Did they say the uh, the planet was built? They said no. They said that, and this is Spock again. Uh, he says the aliens we found in the hypersleep chambers are descendants of a species that was planted 
on their planet by the builders of that moon. As others, of the moon. Yeah, right. so as others of their species were placed in other star systems to evolve along other paths. So that's why I thought, well... Okay. So you didn't actually come out and say that they also built the planet. No, I never... You only said that they planted the people. No, they okay. just seeded okay. the, the species on there to yep. evolve into those little those little short aliens. Yes. With the uh, with the hollow eyes. Oh, they yeah. They look kind of spooky, really. Yeah, they look like... Uh, they look like... Like Harlequin masks type. Yeah. I didn't realize that, but you're absolutely... But they turn out to be uh, nice guys. Yeah. They basically sacrificed themselves for the the crew of the Enterprise. I don't know. Well, they didn't know that, though. Well, they knew that they... I don't know. I think if I woke up from a sleep and found out that the whole human race was destroyed, <laughs> I might be like, eh, just put me back to sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, did they did they actually tell them about the fact uh, about all this? Um, yeah, I think they maybe did. Maybe they want to replant them at a, at a future. No, period no, of time? that part was conjunction by me. Right. Okay. But I'm I was assuming what else? Why why else would the planet want them? Exactly. The artwork was good. It, it is kind of odd that um, many of these were black and white, and then boom, nicer quality writing, and it's in color. I wouldn't so say that the writing the was better in the Sunday papers, but yeah, definitely the artwork got a little pizzazz. Okay, I'm not quite sure what words I used, but I was talking about the artistry, not not the uh, not the script. Well, okay. Yeah, I was talking about the artwork. Okay, was higher quality and in color, and I assume that was the Sundays. Yeah, it was the Sundays. Since it seemed to happen, you know. Okay. Oh, this must be Sunday. Okay. I was a little put off on that, but as I was reading through it, so yeah, in general, it was good for a comic strip. Uh, and, and it was pretty good on Sundays. I think the uh, I think the artwork was nice and detailed uh, on those. Yeah. And I was very surprised to see that. You, know, you had mentioned it before. Uh, you know, though it always happens this way. They there's a there's a risky situation. They don't know what's going on, and they beam down the three most important people on the ship. <laughs> and and this time without any red shirted security guys. They're just. To, to, to die instead of that. Well, they're all wearing just... the red uh, the Well, red exactly. Suits. Are they insane? That's my other point. So, you know, I'm looking at it, and like, I figure, okay, so they're probably white, uh, you know, space suits. You know, okay, fine, fine. Uh, and I'm thinking, I, there's three of them? I mean, the, the three people? And then, of course, sure enough, there comes a robot that totally immobilizes them and kidnaps them. Are they crazy? And then I see, my God, they're in red space suits. Are they? They're insane. They want themselves to die. Yeah, good point. Maybe they only have so many, uh, so many spacesuits. They only have three, so you can only send the three down. Oh, uh, maybe. I don't know. I'm kidding. They seem to have. They seem to have plenty of resources. So. Well, what's funny is that in the in the movie, Spock had the red the red spacesuit, and Kirk had like a white one. In the movie, but in the comic strip, they they all have red. But red pops a little bit better in the in the Sunday paper. Indeed, indeed. Real quick, you were talking about them getting immobilized by the uh, the the tank. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's funny that that the three of them get hit all at the same time, and then these tendrils start coming out of the ca- uh, the tank and start wrapping them up. And you see, Kirk, and he his thought balloon is can't move or talk. What are you? Can you hear my thoughts? So he's trying mm-hmm. to communicate it with uh, with his brain. Uh, then you see McCoy, 
and he's like, what's a country doctor doing on a rock in the middle of nowhere being <laughs> uh, wooed by a tin can? Right. <laughs> and then you just get Spock fascinating. <laughs> the one that should really be trying to figure everything out is just saying fascinating while Kirk, who usually is the most brass and uh, you know jumps without thinking, He's the only one that's actually doing anything somewhat productive by trying to communicate it, communicate with, with his it. Brain. Trying to. Well, I mean, it did tell him telepathically that they are being loved. Hmm. So I mm-hmm. guess there was a president to start trying to uh, talk to it telepathically. Yeah, I thought it was also interesting that the comic uh, had actually gone to the trouble of mentioning that the Enterprise is 190,000 metric tons. Yeah. So that was a that was that was interesting seeing that stat just thrown in there. Did you look that up at all to see if uh... I did. Oh, did you? <laughs> I did in fact. I I did. I saw 190,000. Well, that seems like a pretty pretty specific number. Uh so I went ahead and did a little search on the internet and indeed I found a entry in the Encyclopedia of Science that said that the Enterprise is 289 meters long. 127 meters wide and 190,000 tons in weight. Mm. So, so at least uh, someone somewhere bothered to put the specs down, and at least two things used it: the Encyclopedia of Science and this comic strip. Thought the um, the artificial moon when it's pulling the Enterprise towards towards it. Kirk orders the impulse engines to be used to fight the to fight to maintain distance, mm-hmm. and it's like. It's nitpicky on my part, but you know, quite frankly, the warp engines are so hugely powerful that I don't. I mean, I, I think compare comparatively that the uh, impulse engines are like a drop in the bucket, right? Power wise, compared to to the to to the warp nacelles. And then the other thing that was kind of annoying about it is they went to the they went to the trouble of explaining what the impulse engines were, and they get it totally stinking wrong. I mean, the comic actually said the impulse the impulse engines are conventional rockets. Oh, do they used? Yeah, it actually says uh, the comic. Uh, I know they show a picture of like they're conventional conventional rockets, and then they're used they're used when uh, when there's something wrong with the warp nacelles, and it's like well they don't say nacelles but the, the the warp drive. Comic says they're used in case of warp drive failure. It's like okay, it's not a chemical rocket. I'm sorry. You know, I, I'm pretty sure I remembered the impulse engines are supposed to be like plasma engines, right? Uh, which is incredibly hot gases or whatever. And uh, and then it says, in case of warp drive failure, BS. They use it all all the time when they're within a solar system. Yeah, to the, move around. They're, they're, they're sublight engines, right? You know? And that's exactly it. In Star Trek: The Motion Picture, they made that huge deal that they couldn't use the warp engines. Inside of a solar system, because it'll cause a wormhole or something. Um, mm. Maybe that's why they're saying that they have to use the. I mean, do they actually say they're trying to use the warp engines at first and it didn't work? No, they, they they're just giving this exp, ex, this unnecessary explanation of what the uh, what the impulse drive is. Um, and the two things they say is what I just said. It's a conventional rocket, so it makes it sound like it's a chemical rocket, and it's not. And then. Um, and then they, and then the second thing they say, they use it in case of warp drive failure. Yeah. Which they could, but that's not the main purpose of it. 
Right. No, I, I agree with you. I agree with you 100%. On that same panel that it shows the little rockets going, um, right. right above it, it says uh, warp engine straining the Enterprise is unable to break free of the tractor beam. So uh, I think you were right the first time. So they're, they're already established that they're using warp to try to get away, and then they try to use the 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 impulse engines to give them an extra, extra boost. <laughs> a little extra boost. Which is fine. I mean, it would be an extra boost, but, you know, compared to the warp drive... So in- I mean, insignificant. It's like... <laughs> right. No, you're right. Another thing is um, they refer to the transporter operator as Rand. Yes, so she was. It is. It's It's... Yeoman Rand, I guess. Only whether she's Yeoman or not, she's, I don't know. She's but Chief Rand. Chief Rand. But they don't call her Chief Rand. They just call her Rand. I thought they called her Chief Rand. Maybe it's in the other comic. That... Yeah, maybe maybe another comic. But this one, they, they, they called her Rand. Yeah. So I was like, well, it kind of looks like a blonde woman. It, I mean, it kind of looks like it could be Yeoman Rand. Yeah, but... if you remember in The Haunting of the Enterprise, yeah. maybe that's the one that, that she they called her Chief Rand. Well, she she definitely was in a previous uh, comic book as, as somebody uh, with higher rank, right? So chief, right? yeah, yeah, transporter chief, right? So, I guess so that was pretty. That cool. was her career See, path: her... yeoman to exactly. transporter chief. Exactly. And then, and the next time we see her, will be she'll be a bridge officer on the Excelsior. Ah, yes. So I did like the the picture of the. Inter- the the moon opening up and trying to suck the Enterprise in. I, I thought that was kind of cool how it shows the that little that not little it must be pretty huge the opening kind of like flowering open that that's trying to suck the Enterprise in. I thought mm-hmm. that was a cool visual. Yeah. Yep. I just thought the ending was a little anticlimactic. Oh, just beaming the little guys back over. Right. Now it was probably the right thing to do, but you know. Sometimes a big slap bang explosion filled ending is more satisfying. I just thought I'd So you wanted them to just blow the moon up? No, not necessarily. I mean I, I like I I think I think it was the right thing though I think it was the right way for them to end it. I just thought it was a little not not overly satisfying. Yeah. Well Scotty wanted to blow it up. So Scotty's like, Let's <laughs> shoot a torpedo, that'll curb its appetite. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I'm thinking uh, yeah, you've already proven that there's no life on that moon, so sure, go ahead and blow it up. Exactly. But yeah. They don't. Except you're you're taking you're you're taking away probably the only chance of that race surviving. But yeah, yeah, you go ahead. Well, they got the Federation can take care of them. Yeah, but okay, clone them a little bit. Two people. Well, you'd have to do something because that is too small a genetic pool to to restart a race with. And I just don't know that the that the Federation had all the stuff necessary to, uh, you know, yeah, help them to become a thri- uh, a viable uh, population again. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying, but and I I maybe I'm reading into it, but I really got the feeling that they were going back, and then eventually the planet would reseed or the moon would re- reseed the planet with uh, with these two uh, aliens. And somehow repopulate uh, their species, but I mean it's been almost a thousand or yeah it's been almost a thousand years. I don't know how much longer that moon was going to hold on to the people before it went ahead and did whatever it was going to do. You know they said there right. was nine hundred years, so I don't know if did the planet 
have like a nuclear explosion and they're just waiting for the planet to become habitable again. Yes, exactly. I think that I think you're right. They're waiting for that. Anyways, I, I again I like the story. Um, reading it as a comic strip, you know, because they do have to kind of fill you in. The first couple of panels is always kind of a recap of what happened the last couple of panels or the last couple of days worth. Uh, gets a little repetitive, but I really enjoyed the story. Good. Yeah, it was good. It was good for a comic comic strip. All right, so that was 1980. So that that story came out while the while the movie was still fresh on everybody's mind. Mm-hmm. So now we're going to jump to 1998. Marvel Untold Voyages number one for uh, March 1998. The creative team, uh, the writer is Glenn Greenberg, penciler Michael Collins, inker. Keith Williams, colorist Matt Webb, letterer Chris Elipolos, uh, editor Tim Tui, editor-in-chief Bob Harris. Uh, cover shows Kirk running with the bridge crew behind him. All are in jumpsuit uniforms from uh, the Star Trek motion picture style. The refitted Enterprise is above them, and above the Enterprise, the head of a very menacing-looking Klingon with lots of Wolverine-style facial hair. The uh, grabber message in Star Trek, the motion picture font says, Tales from the Second Five-Year Mission. Second Five-Year Mission, indeed. Okay, inside cover shows a handy intro into the uh, comic series with bios of the top seven characters, just like Marvel did with the Early Voyages comic series. Very helpful. Although I really know all these people, but thank you. It does say Ensign Pavel Chekhov, doesn't it? In the little uh, bio? Yes. Is he st- Ensign Pavel Chekhov. Was he still an Ensign? I hope not. Wow. All right. That's a, that's, a, that's a very good point. Sorry, it just jumped out at me. I didn't even notice it the first time we read it. After all that time passed, and he's still an Ensign? <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, but but I must say, I mean, everybody else is pretty static in their ranks, too. I mean, uh, Lieutenant Sulu, Lieutenant Uhura... Lots of uh, people not moving forward. Right. Um, so happy that Sulu finally got a ship eventually. Okay. The next two pages, uh, like I say, show actual photos uh, from the movie and a synopsis of that movie to set up the comic book series uh, and this per- issue in particular. Okay. So the story opens up on the bridge where the motion picture left off. The crew, the crew is reunited and the V'ger threat is resolved. Spock states he no longer needs to return to Vulcan to undergo the rites of Kulinar. Kirk orders Sulu to take the ship up to Warp 1. Out there. that away. So the that away is important because as I was reading it, uh, it said out there. Kirk says out there. And it's like, well, what about the that away? And so sure enough, I turn the page and you see a glorious two-page spread of the Enterprise uh, warping through space and, of course, uh, the text in the upper left-hand uh, box says, that away. So there's your that away. Um, so that was very good. Right out of the movie. Uh, the next page, in addition to the Enterprise two-page spread, there is um, three more panels that are shown in, in gradually increasing size. And uh, what do we see? We see three Klingon uh, ships in Federation space, no less. The three-battleship cruiser group is led by Commander Krell. 
whose ambitions appear to be outdone only by his brutality towards his crew. Krell decides he wants the advanced-looking starship that just streaked away for its technical secrets and the glory that it would bring him. We discover that they are in Federation space as part of a knowledge-sharing mission concerning the V'ger threat. On the speeding Enterprise, the bridge crew gossips about Captain Kirk's reaction to a message from Admiral Nagora. Is it their next mission? Will it be another life-or-death mission for the recently reunited crew? Or is it just a, or is it on a totally different topic? Spock and McCoy have a hallway conversation on Spock's decision to stay on the Enterprise and, uh, and the contact of Nagora's message. Their discussion happens to take place outside of Kirk's quarters. Kirk finally opens the door and exits, displaying annoyance at their loitering. McCoy asks Kirk about the message, to which Kirk informs them Admiral Nagora has ordered him back to his post on Earth as Chief of Starfleet Operations. Despite Kirk's protests, the Admiral says Kirk is of the most use to him and Starfleet on Earth, but he is letting Kirk stay in command long enough to complete the shakedown cruise. Kirk says now all he has to do is figure out how to stretch out a shakedown cruise for five years. Good joke. They are ordered to the Skyla sector to search for survivors of the Epsilon station that was digitized into oblivion by V'ger. The ship sensors find no survivors, but do find a faint, unusual power reading. Soon afterward, they see three Klingon battlecruisers decloaking and surrounding the Enterprise. Kirk first tries diplomacy, since he recognizes them as the Klingon delegation sent to share information on the, G- on the V'ger attacks. Commander Krell wastes no time in telling them he intends to take the Enterprise. He goes on to say... He is sick of the stifling Organian peace treaty that has oppressed the Klingons and ruined all their aggressive fun for the past several years. Kirk confers with the bridge crew, and though their refitted Enterprise has much improved shielding and other improvements, it's still three against one, and they are unlikely to survive this battle. Kirk tries the old Corpomite maneuver out on Krell, but this time uh, Kirk calls the new superweapon, the Omegatron. Krell calls his bluff, recognizing it as one of the oldest tricks in the book. Chekhov raises the shields, and the attack begins. The Enterprise's improved shields hold out, and they return fire, but eventually the shields start to lose integrity under the Klingon bombardment. Kirk starts to doubt his own ability to get them out of the situation when he hits upon a plan to use a new but dangerous feature of the refitted Enterprise to funnel power directly from the ship's engines into the phasers. Kirk contacts Krell and warns him one last time to break off his attack or Kirk will use the Omegatron on them. Krell scoffs at the bluff, but this Kirk actually has a weapon he can pass off as the Omegatron and concentrates fire on Krell's ship. Krell's engines and weapons are disabled and the ship is left with heavy damage. Though the Enterprise herself is damaged and cannot fire a second time with the modifications in place, Kirk hails Krell as if he wants another, uh, and asks if he wants another extended demonstration of the Omegatron. 
He does not, and withdraws, being towed by his other two ships. Uh, And by the way, he also kills another of his bridge crew to work off some frustration. Kirk orders Scotty to change the phaser configuration back to a more typical configuration, since the single shot they took almost blew up the ship. Later, Kirk emerges from his quarters and is again accosted by McCoy and Spock, who seem like they like hanging around outside of Kirk's quarters a bit too much. Kirk tells them after his handling of the V'ger threat and the Klingon attempts to take the Enterprise, Admiral Nagura has changed his mind and he has given the Enterprise back to Kirk. The second five-year mission begins. Um, The next issue is called Sabak. Cool. So we'll see something about Savik in the next issue. Okay, so that's it. The first Enterprise uh, mission, back in the saddle. The second five-year mission. Which, I think we've talked about this in previous episodes, but there's like some, I don't want to say concern, but there's some disagreement on whether or not there really was another five-year mission in, in Star Trek fandom. Yeah, because uh, you know, in real life, the time between Star Trek One and Star Trek Two was like three years. So Star Trek One came out at the end of '79, and Star Trek Two came out in '82. But in the Star Trek timeline, there's like 12 years in between the two movies. So the motion picture came out and was supposedly in 2273, and the Wrath of Khan and and um, uh, Search for Spock. Uh, was supposedly happy beginning in 2285. So we're talking about 12 years in between those two movies. Right. And so there's been a lot of expanded universe type stuff that deals with Captain Kirk's second five-year mission in the new Enterprise that I think is actually pretty cool. But uh, the the argument that I've heard was takes away something when McCoy in Star Trek 2 tells Kirk that he needs to take her back and all this stuff, oh, yeah. talking about the Enterprise. So, yeah, the, the, the movie continuity uh, does not support the idea of a second five-year mission. Yeah, but does it disprove it? Well, like you're mentioning. I mean, uh, Kirk's still an admiral. Yeah. Um, he's still doing inspection duties. Um, isn't Spock the captain? But so we're talking about know. 12 years, though. So you don't think in 12 years, five of those years could have been a second five-year mission? Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it, I, it's, I, I, it's, all, yeah. it's all up there. I mean, I just remember as a little kid going through the, the novels that were coming out by pocketbooks, and there was some novels that said second five-year mission, and I'm like, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> no, it, it's great to get more Kirk, Spock, and McCoy stories. So I'm all for that. It just, I, I, yeah, I, I just, it's a new concept to me. Anyway. Yeah. Although you did read Star Trek number four and five that showed uh, the haunting of Thallus and the haunting of the Enterprise, where he was still captain of the Enterprise. Uh, yeah. So, anyways, I, I like it. I like the idea of him doing another another tour before he goes back to be an admiral. Mm. So, uh, I thought the comic book was uh, was was an okay comic. It was a good comic. Um, it just it just seems like it wasn't overly creative. 
So here's my here's my bullet point list. Okay, so number one, uh, Klingons always seem to want the latest Federation ships. So this has happened multiple times in Star Trek stories where they always seem to want Federation ships. So again, they've retreaded that idea in this one. Yep. Um, another thing... Um, uh, did Commander Krell borrow his name from the dead race and forbidden planet? As you as you will recall, they were called the Krell also. Although, of course, they were the Krell. This is Commander Krell. Uh, though, technically speaking, the Krell from Forbidden Planet had one L, and Commander Krell has two L's in his name, so they're not 100% the same, but still. <laughs> Commander Krell has an unfortunate habit of blasting his bridge crew multiple times to just prove what a bad, bad ASS he is. Yeah, but that, uh, that's the Klingon way. Well, I know. I mean, you know, it's just like almost every time you meet a new Klingon uh, ca- captain, he's either beating the heck out of his crew, uh, anybody who just disagrees with him, or even hints at disagreeing with him, or in, the, in this guy's case, he blasts him. Didn't Reverend Jim from Taxi yeah. in Star Trek... The three Star blast somebody. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, right. They just they they they're just not nice people. Anyway, that's my list. I could uh, see shooting them every once in a while, you oh, know, to to prove right. your support superiority. But I think if you blast two or three in one mission, uh, <laughs> you might start losing some followers there. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell you, you're gonna get a lot of yes men also. So if that's what you want, you're gonna get it. Kirk again attempts to uh, do the Corbomite maneuver thing. So there's another retread. Well, what did they call the, um, the 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 secret weapon in Galaxy Quest? Yeah, that's what I was trying to Wasn't remember. that something like this? Yeah, it was something like that. I don't remember either, but it was something awful close to the Omegatron. But I don't know. You think we should know since we just recorded the April Fool's episode? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the April Fool's episode. <laughs> That was a wacky one, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. We should have probably mentioned that at the beginning for everybody that might have been a little confused last week when uh, when we were in uh, Galaxy Quest uh, timeline. Uh, so wacky. But uh, so no, wacky. I can't remember what the uh, what that Omegatron thing was. But but anyways, so you didn't like the basically another story about the Klingons trying to take over the ship? Uh, no, I no, I, I'm just saying it wasn't very original. That's all. Oh, that's all I'm saying. Yeah. So I mean, it was fine. It was good. It was fine. You know. I mean, at this point, we've only read maybe like a twenty percent of all the Star Trek comic books, but out of those, we've seen that same storyline in in the other Marvel series, the Haunting of Thallus and the Haunting of the Enterprise, where they were trying to steal the refitted Enterprise, and then we saw it in the Crew, where the original Constitution prototype, which ended up being the Enterprise later, they mm-hmm. were trying to steal. Uh, when else did we see the same story? I don't recall. I was thinking that there was another one where the, it was the Klingons again trying to do the exact same thing. Um, in uh, Next Gen, wasn't the Ferengis trying to steal the Enterprise D? Yeah, maybe. Uh, th- there was one episode when they were trying to do that. Yeah. And they came close, too. Well, the Ferengi were, were kind of really bad guys at the beginning before they became comic relief. <laughs> comic relief and kind of cuddly. Yep, you just wanted to grab those ears and do a little umox on them, right? No. <laughs> no. 
That's kind of gross. Uh, we shouldn't have said that. This is a, a family-friendly uh, podcast. It is. We can't talk about Uma. Yeah, we're gonna lose our our rating. <laughs> oh our yeah, clean, well, our clean rating on 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 iTunes. We're gonna have to be explicit now if we mention Umax Walmart. Oh shoot! You did it. Uh, That's it. That's it. <laughs> Sorry, kids. But uh, when we were when I was reading this, I really loved that they talked about the Organian Peace Treaty from uh, that uh, original episode, Errand of Mercy. When they mentioned it, and I'm like, oh, that's awesome that they brought it up. And then later on, they mention it again. They actually do a little asterisk and say, you know, see Aaron of Mercy to know what we're talking about. Um, right. But uh, you don't see that very often. You don't see them ever mentioning this peace treaty uh, all that often, especially, you know, in the next generation. And even in Star Trek Three. I mean, Klingons are the big bad guys, yet. They never mention that there's this race of people with Q-like powers that can just, with a snap of their finger, destroy all weapons on both sides. Right. Yeah, and it, quite frankly, it seems to me that the, yeah, I mean, it seems like the original series just forgot about it. Well, after that movie did, or after that episode, was was there too many episodes later that the Klingons well, were really the bad guys? Or was it kind of like they're always trying to maneuver, kind of like the, you know, the... Trouble with Tribbles and things like that. They were always trying to outwit the other side and not just a full-scale war. What, Aaron of Mercy? Where the treaty came into being. It seemed to me like they, they just had that series. It was a standalone thing, and it really didn't affect anything else to me. Well, but, yeah. But you you are right. It was it was more Cold War-style kind of stuff as opposed to all-out war. Yep. I did like how you brought up the Corviknight Maneuver because I had a little note about that that... Uh... That I kept wanting to see Baylock in the in this episode with <laughs> being played by uh, is it Clint Howard who played Clint that little Howard. boy? Yeah, Clint Howard, who still gets a lot of work these days in his brother's movies. Yeah. I remember I watched that episode you know years ago, and I'm like, you know, those little kids like have some tranya, <laughs> and I remember thinking that is a weird looking little boy, and and this is like. When the internet, when I first got the internet, it was, so internet had been out for a while, but I was, it was new to me. And I'm like, I'm going to look up to see if that boy was ever in anything else. Uh-huh. And then it pops up, Clint Howard. Andy River Show. That's Clint Howard. Then I rewound it, and I'm like, oh, my God, that is him. <laughs> it is Clint Howard. That's right. That's uh, funny. But anyways, that's Who, one of his funniest scenes, at least I ever saw them, was uh, on an Andy Griffith Show episode. Did he play Opie's evil twin or something? No, he was not his. It was not his evil twin. <laughs> it was just some random kid who was in the uh, in 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 the jail cell or the jail room or the 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 sheriff station. Right. And he was just eating a a jelly sandwich. <laughs> he was just eating a peanut butter or I think it was just jelly sandwich. And I don't remember all the details of it, but it was the funniest little thing. Clint Howard, probably his best moment. Well, you know Clint Howard played a Ferengi in an episode of Enterprise. Oh, really? Yeah. He'd be good for that. Yeah, it was that was a good episode because, you know, obviously the Ferengi shouldn't be in the Enterprise timeline because they're not discovered until more of the Next Generation timeline. Right. So in that episode, they did a really good job by everybody on the ship was kind of knocked out, and then the these three Ferengi came aboard, and it was uh, – uh, Ethan Phillips, who plays Neelix, he was one of the mm-hmm. Ferengis. Clint Howard was a Ferengi. Who was the third one? Oh, he's somebody that's been in Star Trek as an alien. So it was kind of cool that it was three 
actors who had played aliens in other Star Trek series is as these Ferengis. Do you remember that episode? No, I do not. Uh, though I liked Enterprise, I didn't get I didn't get a chance to get a lot of repeat um, uh, viewings of those episodes. Even though I have the first uh, season on on DVD. Yeah, I need to I need to rewatch them. I'm still trying to yeah. get through Voyager. I've been working on it for a year and a half now. Oh, well, that's a lot of episodes to get through. Yeah, I'm still on season two. <laughs> I'm not burning through them very fast. Okay, the last comment I have, um, and then then we can finish off whatever you might have had, is uh, the bridge, the Enterprise bridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you remember it, but the Enterprise bridge and the motion picture was supposed to be huge, right? There was like several people just kind of standing at different stations, um, and the science station was in a different spot and and it was not laid out the way it is in Star Trek the original series and then ends up mm-hmm. in Star Trek 2 they kind of move everything kind of back I think um, in the motion picture there's like two elevators and then back uh, in the original series and in the Star Trek 2 I think there's only one again hmm. but in this comic book it definitely looks more like the Star Trek 2 layout of the bridge than Star Trek the motion picture I thought yeah yeah, another telling thing was, uh, w- did we see Chekhov as his wep- at his weapon station? I don't remember. Seeing uh, that. Yeah, I think he's at. He was the he one. Should have been. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. He was the one shooting the the Omega beam. Yeah, and he should be. Yeah. But the thing is, it's it's very much a close up of him, so you don't know where he's actually in. At least not in that one panel I'm looking at the moment. Yeah. If, you don't know exactly where he is on is on the bridge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you look at the the page right right before. They shoot the oh, Omega. is that supposed to be him? If they, yeah, if you see that there's on the page before the one that he actually shoots uh, Krill's Right, ship, right, right. You see there's a guy at the navigation station, and he's definitely not Chekhov. So well, you see him when they're talking to Krill. You no, know, I'm looking, but the thing the thing is, you know, so Kirk is in there, and he's got the little the the, the thigh restraint things. Right, his seatbelt on the captain's chair is on him, and then. They've got somebody in front of them, but then look at that girl off to the right. I mean, doesn't that look like that? Okay, so the girl looks like she's in she's in the navigator's position. Oh, is that a girl? It looks like a girl. Where the right where the word balloon Ahura cut communications? No, I'm looking. Uh, the new shields are holding, Captain. I'm looking at that word balloon. Yeah, where Sulu says the new shields are holding, and then the person sitting at the navigation is definitely ah. a woman. Which would make sense. Assuming that Chekhov was at his uh, weapon station, which I thought was behind Kirk, but it should be behind uh, Kirk and to and uh, like where you see Scotty running towards the elevator. Yeah, uh, the person right to the right of Scotty should be weapon station. Weapon station. Oh no, really? actually, that should be the science station, and then the station right next to that is the weapon station. Okay. Like I said, the, lo- well, the layout is is different. Is is yeah? They, they they didn't take much time making sure the uh, the layout of the yeah. I don't think it, it's not supposed to be that far to the front because in the movie there was like yeah. other stations in between the weapon station and the view screen where people were just standing at. So that's what I was saying. In the movie, they made the they made the bridge look huge. Versus in the later movies and in this comic book, it's more compact, like it like it was in the original series. Right. Which I like better. I, I didn't really care for the huge, sprawling, open bridge in the motion picture. Yeah, another thing you didn't like about it. I watched that movie, and I I really liked it. <laughs> Did you? I did. did. you? Good. I'm like, 
I don't know why. I mean, it's slower than any of the other movies, but a lot of science fiction movies in the 70s were slower. Hmm. So, but I thought it was pretty good. I'll have to watch it again. Yeah, you got it on Blu-ray. I was wanting to buy it separately because I didn't want to mm-hmm. buy the, I didn't want to chunk up a hundred bucks to get the whole original series in Blu-ray. So I was going to get, I'll just get the the motion picture in Blu-ray. They don't sell it separate. They sell every other Star Trek movie in Blu-ray by itself, but they never, they're not releasing Star Trek the motion picture by itself. Oh, they didn't know that. Yeah, so the only way you can get that in Blu-ray is if you buy the the whole series. I guess you just didn't man up and get get it that way. I know, I got to do it now. <laughs> now you got the peer pressure. Okay, so um why is it that Viger when Viger did digitize the Epsilon station, the Klingon ships, it w- why was it so destructive? I mean, uh you know, the the Enterprise folks scan objects all the time with tricorders and it doesn't destroy things. So why does V'ger's digitization, uh, you know, require that it destroys whatever it's scanning? I just well, because that 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 just never made sense to me. I mean, it's great because it makes there's more explosions that way, and you know that kind of stuff. But um, I just it just didn't make any sense to me. Go ahead, explain. No, it. I wasn't going to explain it. I was just going to give. Uh, I mean, it it's not. It wasn't a human man-made. Uh, Way of of. Oh, I well, I know the Borg did it. Well, maybe the Borg. The Borg did it when they when they upgraded V'ger. If it was the Borg, which which I like to think it was, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I well, I guess if the if if the Borg did do it, okay, I kind of see why it'd be a destructive scan, but right. it didn't have to be. I don't think I don't know. I don't want to have to. Be. Uh, it did happen, but that it makes it more exciting. True. And another thing that kind of. Uh, kind of comes to mind definitely on the repeating the same idea all the time but this is not the fault of the uh, of the comic but it was just like okay in the in the motion in the motion pictures they they kept on repeating ideas so V'ger comes to earth unknown threats threatens earth blah 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 uh, and then of course uh, in voyage home it's similar so you got this destructive space probe coming to earth Oh my God! The uh, Enterprise crew has to uh, has to save them. Just um, I don't. Know. It just struck me as another point of uh, retreading ideas a lot. Nope, I agree with you. Um, Which is funny because you know in Star Trek Three, um, you know you see all those other Federation ships in that space station mm-hmm. that the Enterprise and the Excelsior are encased in. Right. Where were all those ships during Star Trek Four and in Star Trek One? <laughs> <laughs> it's always got to be the Enterprise. I'm sorry. And then they even do it in the in the new movie. I thought. I mean, they at least try to explain it that the well, the, the that Nero was able to just destroy all the ships before the Enterprise showed up. But oh yeah, come on, that's it's pretty much the same story. The Enterprise is the only one in that can do it. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, but at least at least there they made some kind of effort to explain it. Yeah. No. But then but then the rest of the fleet is in the Typhon sector, wherever the hell they were. So that was another thing. Uh, right. That's true. So multiple things conspiring to them being the lone ship. Well, don't they even kind of make fun of it in, in later Star Trek movies where Kirk's like, we're the only one, right? Or uh, <laughs> Was it in Generations or something where they kind of make a joke that – Right. The Enterprise is the only is the only hope, and I can't remember. Yeah, well, when Kirk but, was saying, 
Yeah, I don't remember. And the situation looks grim. Yeah. That's... And we're the only ones that can do it. Yeah, that's it. Oh, and then also um, in Generations, remember? The Enterprise B and its Shakedown Tour had to go suddenly go save the the people from the, mm-hmm. the Nexus. Yep. It was the yep. only ship in, in the solar system. <laughs> exactly. Which seems pretty unlikely. Right. The only ones that could get to, get to them in time. Yeah, retreading ideas, but we love them. We love the ideas. Uh, they stand the test of time as they keep reusing them. Um, I thought Krell looked like a cross between Wolverine and the Hulk in some of the more agitated panels. I kept thinking he looked like King Kong. King Kong? Yeah. Really? King Kong? He looks a little ape-like. a little bit. He looks a little ape-like. Yeah. I'm looking at one panel right now, and he's taken up, like, the whole panel, pretty much. And it's, like, his lower lip up to the top of his eyes, and he looks pretty pissed. He looks pretty menacing. Yeah. No. And and so he he just reminds me of of the Hulk, or... Wolverine. No, I can totally see it. On the second to last page, Kirk states, this is another nitpick, states the engines were not built to handle the power they just pushed them to with the mighty phaser fire of the Omegatron. But logically, it should have been the phasers that were not meant to channel that kind of power directly from the engines. I mean, the engines are able to handle uh, an absolute poop load of power. Uh, where I don't, I think it's supposed to be the phasers that should be having the problem. Yeah, so you're but. you're thinking that the phasers should have just the phaser phaser emitters should have just melted like butter when that oh, much yeah. power was going oh, through. Oh yeah, that's what I say. Yeah, I see. I see your point. So yeah, it's a nit. But, um, but and another nit right there is that you know I think we kind of talked about this in previous episodes that the ship does something amazing and basically the ship's now out of commission. And they're trying to bluff right. their way out of having to fire again. Right. And the Klingons just turn tail and run. But mm-hmm. don't they have scanners? And they're oh, yeah. like, right, right. Yep. Uh, yep. He's threatening to shoot us again, but our scanners show that all their weapon systems are offline. <laughs> I might risk another one of my three ships to... Uh... <laughs> exactly. Well, that plus, they didn't out. even destroy one of their ships. They just shot off a, an engine nacelle. And uh, I mean, and disabled all their weapons magically. Yeah, but I mean, if that sh- if that phaser had that much power, wouldn't you think it would actually have destroyed the whole ship? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. It should cu- should have cut through that Klingon ship like butter. Like butter. That's it. Although that, that the artwork where the Enterprise is shooting the two uh, Megatron beams, uh, which always makes me think of a Transformer. That's a pretty cool shot. I thought. Because it, it doesn't look like normal phaser. It actually has like this rippling halo around the energy beam. So it's not just a, a laser line. It's right. a laser line with like this swirling electricity around it. looks pretty cool, I thought. Right, it does. So overall, I thought the artwork was pretty good in this issue. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, it's good. This obviously must have, if if we're saying all three of these continuities that we'll be reading are in the same continuity vein this this issue must have happened before uh Star Trek the 80 series number 4 and 5 that we that we read in episode 5 I suppose so since it happened immediately after the uh the motion picture motion picture so you think after this issue he goes and talks to the admiral and the enterprise becomes a has a, has to take the magora to uh Dallas <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. So we'll be getting into that in later episodes that we're basically going to be doing three different 
series is based in the same timeline, so I'm sure the three series are not going to be in the same continuity. I'm sure they're going to contradict each other quite a bit. I mean, obviously the comic strip already contra- contradicted everything by having Ilya still alive. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. But anyways, they're still good. But at least they, the least they just had her sitting there. Yeah. At least she wasn't like a central character or something. Yeah, and I don't think she shows back. Maybe the next one she's in, but I don't think she's in it too much after that. All right, so that's it. Uh, Next episode, we were going to be reading comic strip number two and three, and then we'll go back to the 1980s Marvel series and read Star Trek number six. Next episode, and and, in the elsewhere of Star Trek, I'm not going to go over what was going on when the comic strip was coming out, because that'll be covered when we do the, the Marvel uh, 1980 series but in March of 1998 I'm just going to mention that uh, Star Trek New Frontiers number 5 came out called Martyr by Peter David so uh, so it's kind of cool that the New Frontier was still pretty popular cool and that's it so the rest of the stuff that came out that month was all comic book stuff which we'll be covering at later dates good okay. alright so until next week Everybody take care. And I hope you enjoyed the April Fool's joke. Ah, there you go. Uh, Happy trails, everybody. Take care. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.